1: If you want to talk about a separate issue, there will be a time and a place for that. But you are out of order, sir.
0: This Benjirovsky show, Benny J. Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, and the Chicago Reader. Benny J. Take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarowski show as I speak. It's Friday, January 29th, 2021. Uh, the person you heard at the top of the show, D loves playing. And that's uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot chastising some aldermen uh, for asking her questions question she didn't like. Ah, just some of the issues we've been talking about uh, on our show, Alderman getting in trouble with the mayor. Uh, Headline in today's Sun-Times, home delivered as always, give you an idea of what's going on in the world, Scattershot, trying to navigate multiple websites to book a COVID vaccine appointment through many local pharmacies, a frustrating, frustrating maze for many. That's another theme we've been having on the show a lot lately, I do not understand why our country would tolerate a system where we have this, what, dangerous pandemic, The bane of our existence, the number one biggest problem we face in terms of the economy, in terms of health. And we're doling out the vaccine in drips and drabs because we want to make sure the pharmaceutical companies get their money. We have a weird system, folks. That's just me. But we have a weird system. I think if you're honest, you'll uh, agree. All right. We're not going to be discussing that uh, on the show. It's just something that popped in my head when I saw that headline. We have a a different topic of conversation. And uh, so as I do with all my distinguished guests, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce yourself and then we'll take it away. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Shapro Wells. I'm the host of the podcast, Somebody, and I'm here to talk about that today.
0: Yes, indeed. Thank you very much, uh, Shapiro Wells. I want to give a shout out to a couple people. Babs, a longtime listener, is very excited about your appearance uh, on the show. Shapiro and Maya, my partner crime at the rear, uh, who said, Ben, you got to have Shapiro on. And I do whatever Maya tells me. So here you are, Shapiro. Um, but actually, I did want to reach out to you before. Uh, the um the, we've talked about your podcast in the past on the show with Maya somebody and it tells the story of the murder of your son courtney copeland and the police investigation uh of your son and i got investigation in quotes so why don't you start at the top uh and talk about what happened to your son courtney back i think it was in march of 2016 go ahead
1: yes uh courtney passed away on march 4th 2016 and i remember um Around 2 a.m., I received a, a banging at my door that I had, I can't even describe. It, it woke me up out of my sleep. And uh, when I went downstairs, it was the Cicero Police Department. And then when I opened the door, they asked me, did I know a Courtney Copeland? I said, yes, I do. I'm his mother. And he said, well, you need to call Illinois Masonic Hospital right away. So when you get that type of notification as a parent, you immediately have your heart just floored because you know that this is something that's serious. So the first thing that went through my mind is that maybe Courtney was in a bad car accident because he was always texting and driving. Uh, he's injured, but you know, I'm still hopeful that, you know, he's alive. So, um, my husband, he called Illinois Masonic and they were like, You know, we can't give you any information on the phone. Just get here as soon as you can. Once we arrived to the hospital, uh, we were actually um, told to go into the family room. And I remember that moment so distinctly because I know that was the moment that I realized. all, All while I was going to the hospital, I was praying, praying, praying that my son was alive. But once I arrived at the hospital and they told me to go to the family room, I knew my son was gone. And so the pain and the anguish uh, in my heart, but I, I needed that confirmation. And so, uh, you know, unfortunately, the way that things go, they don't automatically just tell you your son had passed away. They don't tell you all the details. So we were waiting around in the hospital for quite some time before a doctor came in. And it was about 45 minutes to an hour that we're waiting to get the official news that my son had passed away. And so when the doctor came in, he said, your son was brought in by ambulance and we did everything we could to save him. He was shot and he succumbed to his injuries." And so when he said he was shot, I I remember my whole family just falling to the ground and saying, shot by who? Shot by who? I mean, because Courtney was the type of person that did not have an enemy in the world. So for him to be shot and killed, that was just unthinkable for us. And that was just something that we couldn't digest. And so, um, you know, we were just floored by the news that he had been murdered. And, um, so we began to try to figure out what happened, where was he, where was he going? And so, um, I demanded to speak to, I mean, I demanded to actually see my son. That's what happened first. And the hospital was like, we can't let you see him. This is a murder investigation. I was like, well, you know what? If you guys don't let me see my son, I'm going to tell the whole damn hospital up. I, I'm, I'm serious. I need to see my son. I need to know that this is my son, that, you know, I need to see him. I need to see him with my own eyes. And so about another 45 minutes passed. And uh, I remember two detectives coming in and they gave us permission to go to where Courtney was. And I remember that moment so distinctly as I walked in that room and I I see my son, uh, you know, gone. And it was just, it's still heartbreaking just to even visualize in my head uh, that moment, seeing him. And I was asking everyone to leave the room so I could have a few minutes alone with him, and I touched him, and I kissed him and caressed him. And all while I was thinking, you know, I'm so sorry that I couldn't be there with you, Courtney. You know, what happened? And I'm just trying to figure out what could have happened to my son. Mm -hmm. And I remember leaving the room with Courtney and just collapsing. And um, when, I, uh, when, I was, um, when I was able to regain my composure, the uh, detectives started to uh, ask me some questions. And that's when my spidey senses began to say, something is not right here. Because one of the first questions they asked me was, who owned Courtney's BMW? And I'm telling myself, why is this even relevant? You know, my son, you should be trying to find out who killed my son. But they wanted to know who owned the BMW to make sure it was Courtney's car. And so I told them, I said, you know, uh, that was Courtney's car, but he did have a co signer. And so I was just so suspicious immediately, almost instantly, because I felt that they were more concerned with the ownership of the car. And so I immediately thought, well, maybe this was a illegal stop going wrong. Maybe they profiled him and maybe the police shot him because they said they didn't have any information. When I asked them who shot my son, what do you know, where was he shot? They say, we don't know anything. We don't know anything.
0: Wait, now I'm going to interrupt the narrative uh, to go back before Courtney was shot. By the way, I have to say, uh, for a hospital. It's so bizarre. You go to a hospital, the hospital calls you in in the middle of the night, you come down and they tell you, your son's dead. And you say, I'd like to see my son They go. You can't see your son because of a murder investigation. I got to tell you Shapiro that is such a bizarre comment to make because like what possible investigation are they doing at the hospital at four in the morning, whenever it is that would prevent a mother from seeing her son. I mean, the investigation is not going to be at the hospital the murder investigation will be where wherever he was shot. I just like,
1: it it was like adding uh, insult to injury at the time. I'm already grieving. I'm upset. I know my son is gone. And then you tell me I can't see him. And so they could see the hospital could see that, you know, my me and my family were getting very emotional anxious and they had to call CPD and tell them, Hey, no, you need to get back here. Because this is not going to go well. Yeah, no. uh, Yeah. Uh, The sad thing is that many families deal with this. This is how CPD deals with family, grieving family. This is their procedure.
0: um, All right. Now, let's go back in time. and Just give folks a little idea about Courtney Copeland. Talk a little about him. He was 22 when he died. Again, it's uh, March of 2016, so if I do the math in my mind, and I'm not the greatest scholar when it comes to math, but I think that means he was born in
1: 1993.
0: Yes. Okay, so so Eddie, go ahead.
1: Yeah, he was born on my 21st, a day after my 21st birthday in 1993. Um, We are like birthday twins, we used to always say, and I am like uh, saying to myself, I thought I was going to be partying on on my 21st birthday and now I'm giving birth to my first love, which is what I call Courtney. Um, He was just like a joy to be around. He was so bright and energetic, full of fun and laughter. I mean, he was just like the energy that as soon as you walk into a room, he just lit up the whole place. And so his funeral had about 2,000 people at the funeral. That's just how many people he impacted with his life. Even though in 22 years, um, and I found so much more about him, how much he was helping people and contributing to society. You know, as a parent, you always try to raise your children to be productive citizens and to be helpful. But I didn't know how much the world needed him until after he was gone. And he was just such a bright light uh, to the world, and he's dearly missed Mm. to this day. He was just a beautiful soul.
0: And uh, he was also a basketball player. I'll throw that on there. Uh, (laughs) Yes, he was. uh, On the Jones basketball. He went to Jones High School, which is in the uh, South Loop, and he played on their basketball team of 2012. Um, All right, so fast forward uh, to... Uh, the scene in the hospital uh, and the police are asking you questions about ownership of a BMW.
1: Yes. And
0: you're thinking, well, how is that germane anything you got to be investigating this? Uh, yes. So did you have a sense? Well, talk about what you discovered eventually about the circumstances of um, Courtney's death. Go ahead.
1: Okay. So, you know, that first interview with the police, it led me to believe that there was something nefarious going on and something just didn't sit right with me. So uh, Courtney died on a Friday. So that Sunday, my uncle called and he said, well, one of my friends is a chaplain at the hospital where Courtney was. And he said that the police said that Courtney was combative and violent. And so I was just like, wow, combative and violent. That's not even my son. He's very... Very respectful, you know. He knows how to interact with police. So for them to say he's violent and combative, I knew that that adjective that they used for my son had to be completely wrong. So my investigation started almost immediately after my son's death. I remember us going to the scene of the car, where we the suspected scene of where we thought that he would be, and we were searching the neighborhood and then. Once I got the police records, so I immediately um, for try to get the police records. I also went to the hospitals to get the medical records, and that was very telling for me. So um, we go to get the uh, the medical records, and we find out that indeed the Chicago Fire Department lists Courtney as violent and combative, uh, a threat to others, and then. They the fire say, department
0: or the police department
1: the fire department which is the paramedic unit that was there to help him so on their the CFD records it says these adjectives about Courtney and then it says and the patient was handcuffed so I'm sitting here like okay my son pulled up to a police officer told them that he had been shot and he asked for help how did he become violent and combative and end up in handcuffs? So none of this made sense to me. And so I began to dig further and dig further into the investigation to try to find out why was my son handcuffed? If my son was injured, he was dying. Why would you handcuff him? And so as God would have it, um, I would, after we received the medical documentation, I actually went out to breakfast at Sweet Maples with my uh, my husband just to unpack all this because we were trying to um, to put piece all of this together. We're going through the timeline. We're creating all this timeline for ourselves, trying to find out the final moments of Courtney's life. And so we began to put together this investigation pretty pretty thoroughly and pretty fast. And uh, we walk into Sweet Maples and lo and behold, it's the nurse that took care of Courtney the night that he was killed. And so I immediately stopped because I I remember her face because she was the one that was comforting me. I didn't know her name or anything like that, but I remember her um, because she was the main one that was trying to calm us down and everything like that. And so I said, you know, I just came from the hospital and I just got my son's medical record, and it says that he was handcuffed. Was my son handcuffed? And she said, yes, ma'am, he was. He came in, he was handcuffed. And she said that and it it actually kind of delayed his care because the police weren't there to take off the handcuffs, so we could not transfer your son to the emergency bed, the trauma unit, because we had to wait for the cops to come in to unhandcuff him in order for us to transition him to begin to work on him. So I'm sitting here in the restaurant with all of this information and I'm like, what happened to my son? What happened that night? And it was just, it was just totally unbelievable. Uh, So uh, fast forward, uh, you know, I work on this case for almost a year myself, trying to for all of the documents, uh, get police files, supplementary reports, and I was subsequently uh, denied. I requested also the the podcast, uh, the pod cameras. I'm sorry, that uh, that were adjacent to the police station as well as also the surrounding areas. They denied me, denied me, denied me, and so. I was really on my last wish and prayer for some help. So I reached out to the Invisible Institute and thank God they took my, my, my case on and they began to resubmit everything that I did. But instead of the rejection, they actually got some answers.
0: Now let's just back up for a second. Are you, are you an attorney? Are you a lawyer? no. Okay. Uh, the reason I ask that is because uh, you are seeking information. Uh, you said you mentioned FOIA. Just for folks who don't know, that's the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, so that's a state law uh, that opens up documents that should be available to the public. But yeah. <laughs> for reasons uh, that vary from document to document are withheld from the public. This is one of my pet peeves should Shapiro just put up with me for a moment. And so, what they do is they make you fill out a bunch of paper and forms to get something that they probably should just offer up from the get go. And so, uh, when I asked, Are you a lawyer? Like most people, when they confront uh, Shapiro a FOIA request, if they're not a lawyer or a reporter or a reporter with a lawyer helping them, it's baffling. I mean, I, I've like, I look at them, the form, the, the You got to put like the state law uh, pursuant to municipal code 452, you know, and so it it deters people. But then what happened? Like, so you had the gumption to fill out all these forms and they rejected you. What was their official explanation when they rejected you?
1: Uh, Just what they always say. This is an ongoing investigation. We cannot release any information on this case. Every last one of the requests that I submitted came back with that. And and that's how they begin to, you know, keep people at bay from getting the information. But I was determined to so, find out what happened to my. So,
0: so you get the institute, uh, and they're a not-for-profit. They got some lawyers that work for them. So did they do anything different with their FOIA? Did they like, phrase it differently? Did they put verbiage in there that would uh, that was more conforming with? Uh, law state law or was it just they are who they are and they got the response that they got which was it
1: i i think that because um they had also assisted with laquan mcdonald that the uh the city of chicago knew exactly who they were and they knew that they were willing to also go into court to fight for these records if need be and so that pressure from the Invisible Institute allowed uh, us to obtain not only the uh, supplementary reports, the unredacted reports, as well as also the video. And, and that video was uh, was very shocking um, when they did. But without even though that they did eventually release it, but they sent it in a format that was unviewable, that is only viewed on um, police uh special cameras that they had so we had to actually reformat the video so after all these months we wait for the videos and everything they still play the games and they send us something that they know we can't view because we don't have the proper equipment so we had to send it off to get it reformatted and so we finally were able to see what happened to courtney that night um so When we receive the video, you know, of course, this is very, very emotional for me. I'm seeing the final moments of my son's life. And uh, when my son comes on the camera, he is uh, on the ground already at this point. And uh, he's looking up, talking to the, uh, the police, the policeman. And he's surrounded by approximately around eight to 10 officers at this time. And so what was, what was pointed about this particular scene of the video is that the official police narrative is that Courtney approached uh, the police officer, told him he was shot and he collapsed. He didn't say a word, that's their official report. So when we see the video, we see Courtney is um, talking, he's alert, and some point, parts of the, uh, the unredacted um, forms said that he was walking around, he was alert. And he, even though he was injured, he was still able to communicate. So I know my son, I said, my son would have told, him, told them who shot him, where he was shot, how it happened. They would, he would have given them that information. So as I began to watch the video, son is on the um, ground for, uh, you know, he's begging them, literally reaching up to police, begging them for help. And that's probably like the hardest part in watching the video is that my son was asking the officers who were surrounding him to help him. And they refused to help him. They refused to help him. At this time, we see the lights from the um, Ambulance, so we know that the police, uh, the ambulance is also on the scene, and they're. It seems like they're asking him questions, but not actually helping him. Remember, my son is shot at this time. He's shot. He's bleeding internally. He's dying. He's asking them for help, and they're questioning him. And the paramedics are standing by. So, as we did this investigation, we figure out that Courtney, from the time that he was shot to the time that he was put in the uh, ambulance, he was he laid bleeding on the ground for 13 minutes. Then they took him to Illinois Masonic Hospital instead of taking him to Strozier or Mount Sinai, which would have been faster and closer. And Courtney actually died four minutes before he arrived to, Mount, uh, to uh, Illinois Masonic Hospital. And had they taken and made the decision to immediately put him in the ambulance once they arrived, he could have made it at least to surgery and they could have possibly saved my son's life. And so what we found out is that during our investigation, they treated him as a suspect as opposed to a victim. And because of their racial profiling, they allowed my son to bleed to death and die. And, and that's the just of what our narrative in our investigation uncovered. No. By the
0: way, while you were um, filling out these uh, FOIA forms, and uh, then you got the Institute to help you, and they sent in their FOIA forms, uh who's the mayor of Chicago? What what Roughly what? I know your son was shot in 2016 mm-hmm. so that would have been Mayor Rahm, was yes. the mayor of the city of Chicago. Yes. Uh, but your your I became aware of your podcast in 2020. So by then, uh, Lori Lightfoot was the mayor of Chicago. So when you were doing this investigation and asking the, the city to turn over documents, what year was that?
1: That was in 2016. I think we finally got uh, documents 20, 2018. We we got the the bulk of it, and we started working on the pot. We were we were working and investigating this whole thing for almost four years so from from his his death until you know we released it we were constantly looking for more information more clues as to what happened to coordinate
0: so it was during the ROM years just yes. wanted to understand yes. that uh, the, yes. the, it actually the, the actual uh uh podcast debuted during the Lightfoot administration but yes. these document the struggle with the city to yes. get these documents was during the ROM years and did did the city ever offer up an explanation as to why they responded uh, to uh, the Institute's request for the documents, but they told you that the investigation was still ongoing. In other words, the investigation was still ongoing when the Institute asked for them, but they still turned them over. So did they ever say what changed between the time you requested and they denied?
1: No, they didn't. My only uh, thing is that, They have, like I said, the the Invisible Institute has a a background of going into court and fighting for these documents, and so they knew that they were going to be able to do that, and that's why I think that they agreed to actually um, release that information so that that way they could um, actually, you know, not really litigate it, because they knew that eventually with the new um, laws that they're supposed to release them in 30 days and all of this information, they knew that eventually they were gonna lose that battle, battle with, with the Invisible Institute and they had the resources. See, when you have regular families who go up against the city, they know that we don't have the, the financial resources, the legal wherewithal to go up against the city. But when you have the Invisible Institute, who has the knowledge, who knows the laws, and they're able to financially back, they knew that they were gonna have a battle. And so that's why they say, okay, let's release this.
0: Well, I think you're getting at a, a, a bigger issue there, right there, uh, uh Shapiro, I'm thinking of Anjanette Young case, which we talked a lot about on the show, and that was the woman, just to refresh everybody's memory, the police burst into her, her home in uh, the middle of the night with a no-knock warrant, uh, and she happened to be naked, she was alone home in her, uh, her, her home, and uh, they handcuffed her and uh, searched the house. And it turns out they had the wrong address, Uh, in the city, man, they played hardball. I mean, they played hardball with her, too. Uh, And I think it's just like an instinctive reaction that the city has when a moment, when something like this happens, like, uh, Anjanette Young's home was uh, invaded by police officers who had the wrong address uh, or uh, Courtney Copeland was shot and then police spent time uh, like interrogating him as a suspect in his own shooting, you know, as opposed to rushing him to the hospital to have him safe. I think at moments like that, then the city, follow me, Shapiro, they act like defense lawyers for the city mm-hmm. and it's not, they, it's not that they want to... It, the truth to emerge they don't want the truth to emerge uh because they don't want to what have to pay money to a, a litigant they don't yeah. want to, have to move admit they're wrong yeah. your thoughts?
1: I, I'm still I'm still waiting for them to admit that my son was handcuffed even though we have Chicago Fire Department documents that clearly stated we have a witness which is the nurse who took care of my son stated that he was handcuffed We still have Chicago Police Department today denying the fact that my son was ever handcuffed. And so they continue to lie and and put forth this false narrative. It's like you're you're blaming the victim for their own death. Just like they uh, blame Miss Young for her being uh, embarrassed like that they have to have some kind of accountability. You know, and people ask me, what do I want? I'm like, you know, I can never get back my son. None of what I'm doing here will ever allow me to ever see my son again. But what I hope is that me addressing these issues will allow the world to know what happened so we can prevent any more Courtney's from happening ever again. Because I can't save Courtney, but maybe I can save someone else's son. And that has always been my passion and my goal, to be able to save someone else. Because these things have have to change.
0: By the way, before I get into the specific uh, lessons that you would like uh, Chicago to learn from what happened to Courtney, uh, I have to ask, do you have a theory as to who shot your son?
1: Well, during the podcast, we did a thorough investigation. Like I said, it was nearly almost four years. And we do have a theory. We gave that theory to the police. We gave that to the police four days after my son was murdered. And if they had followed that path that we gave them the information in the beginning, maybe my son killer, killer would not be still on the streets today. I can't say that CPD killed my son. I can't say even the suspects we believe killed my son, killed my son. Only thing I can know definitively is that they didn't do anything to save my son's life. That the video shows.
0: So what lessons should be learned
1: well, I've been trying to push for Courtney's Law. And Courtney's Law is basically piloted after a program called Scoop and Run that's uh, very successful in Philadelphia. Two out of three injured victims are transported by police immediately to the uh, nearest transport, uh, trauma center. Instead of waiting for the ambulance, the police actually pick up these gunshot victims, throw them in their, on their, in their car, and drive them to the nearest um Trauma center. had that been done and had the, is that if that's a process that Chicago would take, we, I can imagine how many lives that we could save. And so I've been pushing for Courtney's law, and I need our state, federal, as well as also local representatives to support this law because it's about saving lives. My son should not have laid bleeding for 13 minutes before he got medical intervention. 13 minutes on a gunshot wound is critical. And so when we hear things like this, in 13 minutes, he could have made it to Mount Sinai Hospital. He could have made it to Strozier. He nearly, before he actually got medical intervention, It was almost 30 minutes. So when we think about that time and we see that how it's working in Philadelphia, who who have been doing this for a long time. And they're saving two out of three. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And if we can say, I, I just, I sit here and sometimes, you know, we watch Uh, you know, Facebook Live and we have the crime chasers and things of that nature and we see these victims live, uncut on Facebook Live and we see how long it takes for them to go to the hospital. And I often tell myself when I remember when Commander Bauer was shot, they rushed him to the hospital put him in surgery and gave him a fighting chance. Moms like me, that's all we want for our children. Give them the same courtesy as you would give one of your men in blue. And so we have to take, and the reason why Courtney's law is so important, because we have to take the onus out of them being able to select who they want to save. Because I can guarantee you, had Courtney been white, he wouldn't have bled to death. Had he been white, he wouldn't have been questioned as a, a suspect as opposed to a victim. Had he been white, he would have been immediately transported. But we see the racial disparities in this country and especially in the city of Chicago. And I often think as a mom, and I I implore myself to all of the officers who were surrounding my son. Just think if this, my son was your son, how would you have acted with such urgency, with such a need to get your your son to the hospital? So we have to take that away from that power, away from police to be able to decide who life they're gonna save. We have to make those laws to make it mandatory because right now in the city of Chicago, all they have to do, they don't have to provide any life-saving technique, even though they're, they're trained. The only thing they're required to do is dial 911. They don't have to touch them. they don't have to give them CPR. They don't have to do anything. So if we can take Courtney's law and make it mandatory that they do provide life-saving t- techniques and get them to the immediate uh, trauma center, how many lives can we save? That's
0: my goal. Has Courtney's law been introduced? It was. It would have to be uh, passed in Springfield. Has it been introduced?
1: Uh, My local representative, Elizabeth Hernandez, and um, she has put forth um, Courtney's law. But we are looking for more uh, support on Courtney's law to try to get it uh, through the through the uh, legislative process.
0: Well, uh, not far from you is, uh, state representative, Chris Welch, who's the new speaker of the house. His district district is just west of, uh, where live, so He might, uh, reach out to his office. Uh, by the way, uh, before I let you go, have you have, has anybody, even if it's just informally any police officer in Chicago reached out to you, uh, just to, to offer sympathy or,
1: um, No, you know, uh, if you listen to the podcast, somebody, it tells you about a couple of interactions and how I was treated as a grieving mother with police. To me, because I was doing my own investigation, I felt like they were offended that I was even questioning the narrative of, this, uh, of, of my son's murder. And so my interaction with the police have not gone well, to say the least. Uh, but I am still hopeful and I'm still waiting I'm still waiting to, for them to redeem. Because what what I tell people all the time is that when you put a narrative out for black and brown children that they're violent, combative, agitated, a threat to others, those agitate uh, adjectives they use to describe my son Courtney in the light of white America, it allows them to see that whatever happened to him, it's okay because he was all of these bad adjectives. And so for me, they have to make good on that. They have to change that narrative. I'd like to see them change that report because they know that that false narrative that they put about my son was just that. It was false. It was incorrect. And to admit that they made a mistake and to admit that, that mistake cost my son his life. Those who were all involved from, from the leadership of all the officers who were on the scene that night, they made a fatal decision that cost my son his life.
0: The, uh, the name of the podcast, if you want to check it out, everybody is somebody. It's easy to find. Even I found it. And if I can find it, anybody can find it. Uh, some powerful stuff. A shout out to Allison Flower. She did a hell of a job on that show, too. Uh, and, uh, Shapiro, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show. I think uh, we're probably going to have you at the hideout for one of our first Tuesday shows as well, talking about... Uh, yes. The, and broadening it for a larger discussion of criminal justice issues, because I think I may have said this to you already. I, I've for a long time believed that uh, the inability to solve uh, murders um, is one of the reason. There's many reasons, my humble opinion, why we have so many murders. But that's one reason. If there's no accountability uh, yeah. for an action, then people might be freer to commit the action.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you, if you follow yeah. like I just said. If you have, uh, I think in Chicago right now, it's about the murder solve rate is roughly around 15% of murders getting solved. Mm-hmm. If you or me worked at a job and we only performed 15% of the time, we wouldn't have a job. Mm-hmm. And so we're literally paying police officers to do what? I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out. And you know, I, I, I know that defund the police. This this narrative about defund the police is, is a little bit screwed to me because they're not talking about that we don't need police. They're saying that the money allocation needs to be changed. We're investing in police academies, more police. No, we don't we have enough. We just need them to work and so we need to re- change these resources so that that way we can put forth more resources towards solving. This is abysmal. We're the third largest city in America and we have the, a worse murder solve rate than New York and California. How is that possible? How is it that heads are not rolling on the fifth floor? Even though it's Lori Lightfoot's job now, but even has, this has been a continuous process for many years. So yeah, I'd I love to have that extended conversation about the murder solve rate in Chicago because it's it's like that for a reason. I always say it's a will issue. Will they will they do the right thing? Will they do the right thing? To save the lives of the black and brown people. Because let me tell you, they put so many people on Jesse Smollett. And I had two people, two detectives on my son's case. So, where is the priority? Where does the priority lie? If it's an officer killed or shot, they find them right away. So, this is a will issue. Mm-hmm. They can solve these murders. So will they do the right thing to solve it? And I, I have to, as a mom of a, of a black child who was murdered in Chicago, I have to say, it is because of the fact that we are black and brown people. We don't have that priority. We're not a priority to them. But if, it's a, if, if the same number of white children were being killed in Chicago as the same number of black and brown children, you will see that the murder solve rate will be much higher, and it, it's 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 crazy. And m- just last week, my cousin was murdered by the serial killer in Chicago. This guy, I forgot his name, Jason. Uh, the the serial killer that uh, that was his name, Jason. I'm yeah, sorry. he ended up
0: uh, in Evanston. Yeah, I yes. know what you're talking about. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. My cousin was one of the victims. He, my cousin, Anthony Faulkner, was the victim, the 20-year-old victim that was murdered in the, in the uh, convenience store. Cool. So when I look at his case, he was allowed to travel and kill three other people. Three other people prior to my killing my cousin. They knew once he killed a a security guard, CPD knew what kind of vehicle he was in. And they never put out a community alert to say that, hey, everyone in Chicago, be on alert. You can tell me to come in for curfew because of COVID, but you can't tell me that we have a serial killer on the loose. And my cousin is dead because of that. And after he shot my cousin, he went down... Three blocks on 103rd and shot a 15-year-old girl in the head. Then he came back and he shot at the police. They don't tell that part. He came back and he shot at the police. So tell me, how does a serial killer get away uh, with a whole bunch of police and get all the way to Evanston? This is a real issue. This is a will issue black and brown people are dying in Chicago because they don't care to save us. I don't care what nobody says. That is the real issue. And until they care for us, like they care for the other races and the rich people in this country, we will continue to die because these are innocent people. My son was innocent. My cousin was innocent. He was buying some chips and juice and the man came up and shot him in the back of his head he never even saw him coming. And we were, and the public was never notified that there was this grave danger in the streets. Something has to change.
0: All right. Chapur Wells. Thank you so much. And uh, yes, something has to change. Uh, i like to end on some optimistic note. I can't think of an optim- optimistic note to end on because it's been happening my entire life and I'm older than you. So it's been happening a long time. Uh, and uh, Chicago has just been an exceedingly violent. I say this all the time in the show. It's been a violent city since, for as long as I can remember. It's like this this retaliation culture that exists in Chicago crosses all races. Somebody crosses you, you got to punch them back. And uh, we see our mayors do it, too. Someone crosses them, they punch them back. And then compounding that is stall racism and prejudice and bigotry out there. It's a volatile mix. And I wish there was something uh, positive I could end the, the show on. Uh, but I'll say this. Um, appreciate your Digging in and uh, sticking your neck out, and filing all those FOIA reports, and yes. continue to file the FOIA reports, and uh, and even just coming well, on the let show. Let me just talk. say
1: this before I go, Ben. Let me just say this before I go. You know, even through all my pain, you know, God has been amazing. And he has allowed me to turn my pain into a purpose. And we can end with this with, you know, I'm still working in the community. I'm still helping the community, doing the things that Courtney loved to do. And we started a foundation, which is the Courtney Copeland Memorial Foundation, to continue to help uh, curb this violence in the community. We do community outreach, book bag giveaway, food drives, all of these things. Because that's what we believe in, that we need to change the way people feel. We need to bring more love and more happiness into this country so that that way people will have hope. And that's one of the things that, uh, that Courtney always strived for. To He said, you know, I'm out here changing lives, Mama, and, and, and I'm going to continue to walk for Courtney. Thank you, Ben.
0: All right. Very good. Thank you very much. Uh, that's Shapiro Wells. I'm Ben Jarofsky.